Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon Podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories analysis every week. I'm Hugh, and back with me today, I've got Jess Farmery from the Somex team and Aoife Fordham. Eva is a GP trainee and National Medical Director's Clinical Fellow working in the Transformation Directorate at NHS England. Eva's health tech journey started as a foundation doctor. Frustrated by paper referral forms, she walked into the IT department with an idea and six months later had created the Trust's electronic referral forms. This led to a role in the IT department and she's now leading national tech projects at NHS England, such as the redesign of the National Clinical Safety Officer training and creating NHS certified YouTube videos for common acute minor illnesses like tonsillitis. Aoife, I I really want to talk about the uh, health verified videos on YouTube uh, and we'll definitely give you a chance to uh, tell us a bit more about that later. But for now, how's your week been? How are things? I've had a really great week. Thank you, Hugh. Um, I have been, in the last few months, I've been leading the review on a NHS England IT project. And this week, I presented the outcomes and recommendations to a group of commissioners at NHS England. It seemed to go quite well. So I was delighted with that. I also helped my dad build a new decking for my back garden. So all in all, a constructive week. Good week on and off the profession, I suppose. Uh, (laughs) Jess, how, how about you? Yeah, my week's been fantastic. Um, had the usual mix of interactions with our clients um, and with journalists and managed to secure some really high quality content across the health tech sector press this week. So I'm feeling very happy. And in non-work related news, I managed to watch the entirety of the Netflix Tour de France documentary. Um, so that was an achievement that I'm very proud of. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I hope you're both looking forward to discussing the best health tech stories of the week today. Well, uh, on to our, I guess, on to our first story. So this one's an interesting one. It's from Digital Health. Uh, the majority of the public want digital health apps to be used in the NHS. Uh, so this is quite an interesting story with some uh, interesting stats in it. Aoife, you've you've read this. Do you want to? Uh, Tell us a bit about it and any thoughts you have on it. Yeah, absolutely. So essentially, the Organisation for the Review of Care of Health Apps, also known as ORCA, released their third annual survey, which showed that 60% more GPs compared than last year are recommending digital health apps to their patients. And this is coupled with the statistic that 47% of patients surveyed said that they are using healthcare apps, which really exciting statistics. But the article then goes on to share some more concerning statistics, the first one of which is a staggering 0% of people surveyed actually checked the app's clinical credentials. And instead, 30% said that they they felt that reading reviews about the app would provide them with adequate protection. As we all know, since COVID, health apps have surged and they do have many benefits. They empower patients to take their health into their own hands, literally, and they can, in cases, improve the accessibility of services. So, for example, mental health services, instead of seeing a physical person, there are some benefits to to engaging with an app. But as the market for apps increases in the health space, so does the magnitude of the issue of regulation. And this is not just a problem here in the UK. This is a worldwide problem. And every regulatory body is approaching it in a slightly different way, be it the MHRA here or the FDA in the US. And it does open a wider question about accountability and ownership. So should the distributors like Apple App Store and Google Play Store, should they also be the gatekeepers? Should it sit with the actual app developers or should it be a more national 
a more national approach such as with the MHRA. So with this in mind, it does seem very sensible that Orca have created a digital health formulary, which is essentially a safe app store for clinicians to prescribe apps to patients and similarly a second formulary for patients to download safe regulated apps. Great. And I mean, it's interesting. This is a really interesting one, isn't it? Because you know, there's there's the question of where people are actually finding these health apps, where, you know, who's pushing them towards them? You know, are you, if you are looking for a health solution, just searching the app store? Or are you going to your GP and the GP is maybe prescribing this? Or if you've uh, found it through a different clinical pathway, you know, if you're going to, if you've been diagnosed with cancer, you, you might get referred to an app that helps you with this as, as well. I think I think this is the kind of interesting question here. If I downloaded an app that I was looking for from an issue, I don't know how the hell I'd check the clinical credentials of it. I'm not sure where I'd find that information. And uh, you know, is it is it on app stores to say you should check this? Is it on app stores to say uh, on the app developer to put it right up front and say, you know, we are clinically validated and verified? I, I think this is an interesting piece on health information. And um, Jess, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised that 0% of people um, check the clinical credentials of an app prior to using it because, yeah, I think that, as you said, Hugh, very few people would understand how, why or what credentials they should be checking. Uh, so I think it's kind of misplaced to expect the consumers to be making these decisions about what to trust and what not to trust. Um, I think that there needs to be checks and balances earlier on in the process. So before these apps are allowed onto the app stores, um, I think these kind of checks should be um, taking place rather than putting the burden on the end user. Eva, what, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, as a GP and a, and a clinician, you, you're probably you know faced with questions about sort of where do these, where does the referral process come in? Where do people actually start engaging with this with these apps? Should there be more of an onus on on providers, developers, app store operators? I think there should be and there should be a level of accountability towards app providers being being the gatekeepers for the quality and the safety of their apps. And I know that there is European regulation that is putting onus on these distributors and also on the developers. And it also it raises a larger question on what's the difference between a health app and a medical device. So is it just a wellness device that's for example, allowing you to track your heart rate, for example, or is it when the most, I think one of the most stark representations of this is, is it an app that can calculate, for example, pediatric dosing of medication where there is huge scope for error? So I think there is, there needs to be a delineation between a health app and the difference between that and a medical device. As from a GP point of view, there, there was a quote in that article that says, it's the equivalent of buying a random box of pills with no MHRA approval and swallowing a handful of them hoping for the best. I thought this was a really stark quote and it, and it does really make us think about the fact that that these apps do have large potential to, to influence people's health in both good and bad ways. And I think the onus possibly does sit with us as medical professionals to ensure that we are we are providing people with safe apps to use. And with that in mind, I think it's brilliant that Orca have come up with this, this 
database idea with the digital health formulary. But it raises a wider question of how do you then actually distribute that within the NHS? And how do you ensure that clinicians know that they can use it? And that patients also know that it exists and that they should be asking clinicians which apps are best. And I think that kind of advice should come from, or that that kind of communication should come at a national level from the NHS. But there are many difficulties about how you communicate that to whole nation. I just want to make one more point on this, if that's okay. And it comes back down to access to health information. And I was at a talk a few weeks ago, and Professor Bola Awalabi, who's the Director of Health Inequalities, was quoted saying that access to health information is a determinant of health. And I was recently involved in a retrospective observational study which quantified digital health access across England. And our study showed that there is a direct correlation between the percentage uptake of the NHS app and socioeconomic deprivation. So once again, I'm all for promoting apps and all for promoting them as a GP, but I really, really want to make sure that they're reaching our whole population. And we need to make sure that we're not siloing information just on health apps. So is this becoming a a digital inclusion problem again then? It's something we keep seeing, you know, the question rearing its head with digital health, but you know, how how is this going to affect when it comes to digital health and you know, the problems that we a lot of people have already addressed on digital inclusion? I think absolutely. I think this is, is a, a digital inequalities issue. And I think it's something that we cannot ignore. And I don't think there's a one size fits all solution for that. I think the the best option is options and giving patients the options of apps, but also giving them alternative options and working not just at ICS level, but at local level to really understand your population, understand how they access health information, but more importantly, what health information they trust, what resources they trust, and then working with them teams to make sure that they're giving across the correct information. I've got. I think there's one thing in this article we haven't we haven't quite got to or discussed yet, which is just the. Uh, the consumer campaign that Orca are launching around this, uh, off the back of this, I think the research has been out for a few weeks now, but it looks like the campaign itself may be, may be quite new, which is just uh, the Think Safe campaign helps to remind the public of the following guidelines before they download a, a health or wellbeing app. Secure, how secure is the app? And does it have a clear privacy policy? Ask, have I asked a healthcare professional about this app choice? Find, where did I find this app? And evidence, does the app demonstrate clear evidence it was developed by someone with medical expertise? I guess a lot of what we've already talked about, we're talking about the onus on B2B. Uh, We're talking about the onus on developers, app store operators, the NHS. Do we, you know, do we think it's, realistic that we can ask consumers looking at health apps to to kind of consider all of these points um you know is is there perhaps putting a bit too much onus off the back of this article on consumers to say have i asked someone is this secure is there a privacy policy is there a developer statement on the clinical validation of this app is is that too much I mean, I think to an extent we have to um, give the public credit for having some common sense um, and being able to have some degree of um, informed decision making um, when they're choosing their apps. I'm sure most people will go into making the decision with some degree of education already regarding whether it's a sensible, have they found it in the right place, um, has it been recommended, um, what's the evidence behind it. But then there are other elements where I think it will be difficult to make a decision without extensive prior understanding. For example, security, how secure is this app? Um, most people don't understand the various nuances of app security or the nuances of privacy policies. 
Um, even people with years of experience probably don't understand every single nuance there. Um, and it's always quickly evolving. So I think that's a very difficult decision for most people to make. Um, and also with evidence, um, I think it's difficult to understand um, what qualifies as medical expertise when it comes to developing an app um, and how you find out whether the developers have the required certifications and licenses they might need to provide the information. Okay, so our next story comes to us from Fierce Healthcare. Telehealth should not be considered a one-size-fits-all diseases solution, says a study. Jess, you've taken a look at this. Uh, do you want to tell us what it what, what it's all about and uh, any thoughts? Yeah, so um, this is a piece from Frank Diamond in Fierce Healthcare. Um, and his takeaway from this is that while payers should cover telehealth, um, where these services are most valuable still requires investigation. Um, and this comes from a study in information systems research um, where they've collected data and reviewed it from hospital-based outpatient clinics in Maryland from 2012 to 2021. And the researchers did a literature search that identified 16 diseases and asked providers to score them on a scale of low, medium or high in terms of their ability to go virtual. Um, and kind of the, the authors of this report argued that telehealth's benefits can be seen in treating conditions and diseases with high virtualization potential. So they've listed those conditions and diseases as mental health, skin problems, metabolic conditions, and musculoskeletal diseases. Um, and that kind of um, mirrors the areas here in the UK where we're seeing the greatest investment and the greatest successes for um, remote care provision. Um, but the authors also um, concluded that telehealth did not significantly reduce visits to specialists or emergency departments for circulatory conditions or respiratory conditions or infectious diseases, which again mirrors um, kind of programs and results that we've seen over here in the UK. So yeah, one of the authors concluded that people believe that telehealth will be the next big thing, the future of healthcare. But of course, this is not as straightforward um, as people think. There's more nuance. So they have some interesting success data here, um, which showed that telehealth could reduce the number of outpatient visits and deliver savings. They've said they've got here a 13.6% reduction in the number of outpatient visits, which um, equates to $239 in savings per patient within 30 days of a telehealth visit. But this, yeah, this varies, of course, between um, depending on what the condition is. So, yeah, the authors of the study hope that um, they will contribute to the discussion which is going on currently um, in health systems across the world about how telehealth can be used to more effectively utilise the healthcare resources and also considering the areas where it's not the perfect solution and we need to explore alternative models of care. So I think it's just, yeah, a good, a good contrib contribution to a discussion which is already ongoing. Yeah, this is this was an interesting one for me. I think it feeds in nicely to some of the kind of slightly wider sector discussions going on about funding and financing of telehealth as well. And you know, we've we've seen the the so-called quite significant decline of funding for telehealth solutions and some you know changes in business models happening since the you know in the post-pandemic world for health. But I think you know there's interesting questions about the high virtualization potential I, I like that term of uh, of different areas of health and you know I was quite surprised to see mental health in there um I think you know obviously it has its prospects in the sort of there's a there's a kind of key point in this article about it can function as a gateway to healthcare for individuals who live in rural areas and I think that's a that's a really great point about it's again another digital inclusion piece 
But I, I wonder, Aoife, if, if you have any thoughts on sort of this article and if, if, you, if you sort of agree with its, its general points and the kind of different aspects of healthcare uh, that can be virtualized versus those that can't and, and, and sort of your views on, on that. Yeah, absolutely, Hugh. I thought it was a really, really interesting article. And telehealth is not new since COVID. It existed long before COVID, but actually it was the change in culture and acceptance of telehealth that changed during COVID. And I think my favourite quote that sums it up is that there are decades where nothing happens and then there are weeks where decades happen. And I feel where we are right now with telehealth is we're almost trying to catch up with what happened (laughs) during COVID with regards to the boom of this and how does it now fit in. I can speak of my experience personally working as a GP trainee in general practice in the the midst of COVID using telehealth. And actually, we saw huge advantages. Patients who were more rural, who had mobility issues, those who were very busy and didn't want to have to take time off work or couldn't take time off work to come and visit the practice. It was also made our lives a lot easier because we could actually prioritise our patient lists in an order that more suited our workload because we could call them at different times. They weren't waiting in the waiting room. Also, the issue of state, also less resources generally required for a telehealth versus a in-person solution. I'll never forget the patient who was immunosuppressed and elderly, who, when I suggested came in for a face-to-face appointment during COVID, was actually delighted because they wanted they wanted to actually come in and have that human interaction. So this does really beg the question of who does telehealth truly benefit and what value does it actually add to the patient experience? So I guess in response to that, is it that we can't really break it down by disease area? Is it is it more a case of it's it's I think we've discussed this on a on a recent podcast on the horses for courses point on um, telehealth versus in person care. Is it is it more what the patient and, and in fact what the clinician wants um, than what what is necessarily appropriate for the disease area? I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's definitely what I felt when I was reading this article. I think you can stratify based on diseases and maybe that can offer you your initial layer of stratification. For example, some conditions, it just simply would not be possible, even if both the clinician and the patient wanted it. But maybe like you were saying with mental health, skin conditions, those kind of conditions, maybe in those areas it could be considered. But then I think the patient should always be offered a face-to-face option if, if they want one. Okay. And in something like primary care then, when, when demand is sort of increasing really highly and, and there's a push towards making sure it's the right care, the right person gets the right care at the right time and in the right format, should we be prioritising that, that want or should we be prioritising it on a, on a need perspective? I think it's a bit of a balance of both. I think in reality, we need to account more for the need, but I think where resources allow, we should also cater for that want I know that the practice that I'll be going back to in August, all appointments start off as being a telephone consultation. It's not a triage, it's a consultation with the health professional. And then it will be decided between them whether or not the patient should come in. But for example, children, children will always be invited in with their parents because it's it's seen as always good practice and safer to eyeball children. So I think generally in general practice, there is a move towards telephone consultations, but actually the threshold for then seeing a patient is, is still quite low, which is good. Well, if, if you uh, are listening and want to read this article, I, I highly recommend it. It's very interesting, even though it's a US-focused study. The uh, the stats are done in the reduction on outpatient uh, visits as well. So it is very much applicable. I think this uh, feeds into some nice discussions on uh, whether what telehealth and how we should be funding telehealth as well. So do check it out if you're interested. 
Our next story comes from Nation.Cymru. So this article points to a Senedd committee um, at the heart of the Welsh Government, uh, which says that in a report that a lack of clear direction from government and health services means that frontline teams aren't seeing the benefit of the rollout of digital health services. Um, they have pointed to a number of successes. They were The committee itself said they were pleased to receive evidence about successes to date, including continued rollout of the Welsh nursing care record and services to support the response to COVID-19. So there are successes they can point to. However, they are concerned about the movement of key people in charge of digital health services to other roles and major projects stalling or not rolling out as intended. Uh, one of the key challenges they pointed to is the rollout of the Welsh Community Care Information System, um, the patient-facing NHS Wales app and the integration of services with social care. The community care information service uh, had been developed as a single system and shared electronic record for use across a wide range of adult and children's services, says the article. Um, 22 of the local authorities were supposed to have implemented it, but so far only 19 have, and the level of rollout and the maturity of the service is different across each of them. So the result of this is we're not seeing the benefit of digital health rollout in frontline Welsh healthcare services, and it's costing too much, says the committee. I think this is this is an interesting question because I think it would be hard not to point to healthcare across uh, the UK and NHS digital health projects quite generally as perhaps sometimes lacking the impact that, that they're hyped up to have. Uh, I think we've seen some great examples, but you know, equally we see some that we never hear results about. So I guess there's a question is, are we too optimistic about health IT projects? Uh, I'm going to push that out to Aoife uh, for your thoughts on that. Could we be seeing more benefit from digital health? Is this something that we see only in Wales, but England is performing better on? Uh, and you know, What are your thoughts on this? I read this article and the first thing I thought was, well, this sounds like a huge undertaking. <laughs> Wales has a population of 3 million. Just for context, that's only a third the size of London. And England has a population of 55 million. So from a point of view of having a population of 3 million, it sounds sensible that they have a unified electronic patient record system. We are in the process of doing similar here in the UK. So we have the NHS app, which we know many, many people downloaded during COVID. And we're now using that as a central repository for appointments, for blood test results, etc. We also have the summary care records, which was set up in 2010, with the idea that primary care information is put on a central database and can be accessed by anyone in the health service unless patients opt out. So we do have similar initiatives, but yes, it is a huge undertaking. And anecdotally, I heard someone say a few weeks ago that trying to implement IT change in the NHS is similar to that of trying to change the wheel of a car as it drives down the motorway. And I think the true magnitude of that anecdote can never be forgotten. I think the difficulty with trying to implement any form of national IT change is the legacy of what has come before it. In every single IT system in the NHS, there have been years and years of trying to make it work by adding on different APIs, integration solutions, additional systems just for one specialty to use and actually then trying to almost override all of them and get them to integrate into one single system is a huge undertaking. And when I say huge undertaking, there's there's the tangible parts of a huge undertaking. So that's governance, clinical safety, 
But then actually, there's the undertaking that we don't see. And that's the powerful undercurrent that really, really affects change management. So I've seen things like bureaucracy, sunk costs, digital readiness, actual trust in IT. And I've heard it said that whatever your budget is for implementing an IT solution, you should in reality budget for a third more to account for these these hidden and sunken costs. I can see the overall benefits of when, hopefully when, if and when this this unified system is up and running, because any form of shared healthcare record is always going to be a good thing for patients in terms of clinical staff and whoever else needs to access that information having that to hand. However, I think there is also a lot to be said here about solutions being driven locally. And I'm just going to give an example. I was working during COVID, the second part of COVID, in an A&E down nearby where I live. And I realised in order to do a ward round, we had to open up eight different systems, one for bloods, one for observations, one for radiology. I went to the IT department and I said, why don't we just make a dashboard, bring all the information together and put it on one screen. Eight different systems, but all display on one screen. And yes, we saved a huge amount of time on ward round in terms of the amount of times that doctors were spent waiting for information to load. But actually, the true value of that was that then doctors had more times to engage in activities more related to their work, such as to have a lunch break. And actually, the true value was therefore unlocked. So I think it's a bottoms up approach, but also a top down approach. And both need to be taken into account. That sounds truly terrifying as a concept that you've got to make the top and the bottom work together to to make the make the middle work jess what are, you, what are your thoughts on this i mean um you've worked with uh, a lot of companies a lot of digital health um rollouts in the nhs and you know where do you see sort of the benefit coming from this um, I just think that that analogy of um, trying to implement digital change in the NHS is like trying to change the wheel of a car driving down the motorway. That's a fantastic one um, and definitely true from what I've seen. A real problem is in terms of slowing down rollouts is just not, not a reluctance um, to change amongst um, healthcare professionals and people working in the health systems. I think people do really want to change. Um, but it's just the fact that people have got used to doing what they're doing and it is just working. It's working enough to meet their needs right now. So when someone comes in and says, we're going to do this big digital transformation, that's going to send you offline for a week. And then you're all going to have to relearn how to use a new system that might actually be more complicated or difficult than what you're already doing. I think people is instantly going to get their backs up and there's going to be some reluctance. So I think one of the biggest hurdles to overcome is to persuade the people who are using these systems to take the leap to using the new systems and to use them confidently into their full capacity. And when it comes to ICSs and kind of integrating all of the the kind of different organisations that are rolling out their own digital health solutions and then there's the NHS England at the top, could ICSs be taking a a leading role in in driving this and, and helping coordinate what's going on or is it is it down to individual practices, individual hubs, individual hospitals? I think that's a core function. It should be of the ICSs to take that um, coordination leadership role um, and to kind of, they have the bit more of the oversight capacity and the headspace that the people on the ground don't necessarily have. So that seems like a natural role for them to take. I'd just like to add as well, with, with this article, One part that really stood out for me was a quote from the committee who's evaluating this piece of work. And they said, we applaud ambition and positivity, but we caution against over-optimism. And this was in relation to the project team who are are rolling out this project. 
And I think that raises a really interesting question here, which I've certainly noticed working in various parts of the NHS, is when a committee comes in or an overarching governmental body is monitoring the success of a rollout of the project, what metrics are they using? Are they simply using how many live sites do we have? It's very easily quantifiable, can be measured over time, but actually does it truly reflect the quality of that live site are they truly deriving benefits? And actually ensuring that we use metrics that go beyond that all the way down to what value are we adding to a patient, I think is really crucial when it comes to monitoring these projects. So do we just need to get better at keeping our impact measurements measured then? So when we when we announce projects in, in healthcare, we just need to be clear about what we actually want to achieve and, and not making not overpromising what that what what is possible. Absolutely. I think you've yeah, absolutely hit the nail on the head there. And the day that the project is thought up, the aims that are written on the whiteboard that day, they are the aims that we should be measuring the whole project against for the whole of its life cycle. So from the day of discovery all, all the way to the day of decommissioning and ensuring that we have the ability and the data and the access to actually measure those aims in a quantifiable way that truly benefits patients. Fantastic. A note to anyone kicking off projects in the NHS or healthcare uh, is just be clear on what you're delivering and uh, be honest when you have or haven't delivered it. On to our next story then. Our next story comes to us from Finn SMEs, which is Eureka Health raises $7 million in funding. Uh, Eureka Health, a San Francisco, California-based provider of community dedicated to helping chronic disease patients share experience and discover treatments. Uh, so they've just come out of stealth uh, with a platform already uh, filled with basically people suffering from long COVID who've been sharing their experiences of uh, the disease and their experience of treatments. Uh, the company will use the funds that it's uh, received to build and grow the community, expand its treatment database, and influence and advance treatment research. There's a lot of high-profile backers on this, uh, with you know, funders including Sci-Fi VC, Able Partners, Bo Capital, uh, in a round led by Kozla Ventures. Uh, there's quite a high-profile um, number of individuals backing it, including the former CEO of YouTube, the co-founder of 23andMe, and the founder and chairman of Cancer Commons, among others. So what can we learn from this and what does this mean for people suffering from any number of disease areas? Aoife, your thoughts, please. So I was absolutely delighted to read this article and I think it's amazing that $7 million of funding has been given to this grassroots project. I think it's also really exciting because also in the news this week was the article that the investment by venture capital into digital health in the US is on pace for the lowest annual funding cost since pre-COVID. So I looked up the statistics about long COVID on the Office for National Statistics, and there was a survey done in February 2023 that showed that a staggering 2 million people in the UK which is 3.1% of the UK population, were experiencing self-reported long COVID. I mean, that's huge. That's a huge proportion. And it's not just the physical effects of long COVID. It's the isolation. And I think what I really, really enjoyed about the idea of Eureka Health's platform is that feeling of community and being able to collaborate and share ideas and, and successes and, and also just share experience. And, and giving these people that platform must be hugely, hugely beneficial. 
going to say that I did a bit of um, digging on the Eureka website to try and find out a bit more about um, what they're doing right now and where they're going. And it's just interesting to think about what their future plans are. Um, so over the next few years, they're aiming to provide a platform for patients to influence and participate in research. Um, so from using patient experiences to answer important research questions, like which drugs are the best candidates for clinical trials to facilitating direct participation in research. So I think it's really exciting to see this move towards involving patients more um, in clinical trials and in research, which is something which is sorely needed right now. Yeah, there's two great points there, which is, I mean, Jess, absolutely. I think there are so many rare diseases out there that don't get the attention that they need. And I think that feeds into the isolation point as well. Uh, you know, I know someone with long COVID and it's you know, they they came down with the well, they came down with COVID right at the beginning, back in April 2020, and they've been suffering with long COVID since. And it's been such a, a roller coaster. You know, you think you're better, and, and suddenly you're, you're not. Um, and in the end, it, it's forced them into retirement um, early. And their access to support, and you know, what they can share is no one, no one around them has it, and no one can understand what they're going through as well. So, having an opportunity to share that, having an opportunity and a platform on which to talk to other people suffering um, with that, and share their experiences and share what works and what doesn't, is going to be is a, it's a kind of revolutionary. It, it will be transformative, and I think to have that for other disease areas, whether they're rare or not, it's going to be so valuable. Um, and and just being able to feed that in, and I think Eva, you sort of mentioned about it coming in at the end of what was essentially the you know the pandemic bubble for digital health funding, and to see this kind of funding come into something at quite an early stage is is quite refreshing, especially as we see funding rounds uh, very much tending towards the Series B late stage companies uh, point. So this this is great news. That was our stories for the week. Aoife, I'd love to hear more about what you're up to at the moment and an update on the uh, the YouTube projects that you're working on and anything else you'd like to tell us about. Um, so if you just want to uh, take this opportunity to tell us tell what you're working on. Yeah, absolutely, Hugh. So like I said at the beginning, so I'm the National Medical Director's Clinical Fellow, currently working in the Transformation Directorate at NHS England. It's been a very busy but a very exciting year. So I've essentially led the redevelopment of the training modules for the National Clinical Safety Officer Training. But the main project I've been involved with, which has been my main passion, is creating NHS certified YouTube videos for conditions that are the highest volume, lowest acuity uses of 111. So we're essentially talking about common common viral illnesses, common minor viral illnesses. It's been a whirlwind of a journey. When I started off, I wanted to create lots of videos, get loads of views and loads of likes. And the journey that I've been on with the, the user-centered design team and the multimedia team is actually this goes far beyond that. And now we're looking to measure the actual comprehension metrics and the behavior metrics of the videos that we produce. So going back to what we were talking about with these apps, are they actually high quality? What does quality mean? And what it really means for us is ensuring that when people watch our videos, they can trust them and they feel empowered to then know what the right thing is to do. So it's been a really, really interesting journey. And I'm really hoping I can continue this work when I move on from this fellowship. I am now going back into GP training. I'm going to be working 
working in GP training 60% of the time with two days a week to embrace whatever health tech, consulting, advisory, management opportunities come my way. So if you're listening to this podcast and you would like to collaborate or chat about all things NHS IT adoption or YouTube videos, please feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. My name's Aoife Fordham and that's spelt A-O-I-F-E. Fascinating. Thanks, Aoife. We look forward to uh, you know hearing the updates on everything you're working on with YouTube and hopefully have you back on the podcast again really soon. Thank you to Aoife and Jess for joining me for the Health Tech Pitching Podcast. Uh, you can find all the stories we've discussed, plus more, including jobs, opportunities and podcasts in the Health Tech Pigeon newsletter at healthtechpigeon.com. Thanks and see you next week.